0: Mess around my house. It's called being a bragging dragon. So feel free to use that. <clears throat> my children are good at calling on each other on it. They're like, "You're being a bragging dragon. You need to chill out." Um, I was 22 years old, and I was sitting on a giant field in Memphis, Tennessee, with about 30,000 other college students who had no clue what they wanted to do with their life. And I remember sitting there just contemplating things. I'm like, I'm 22 and I'm sitting on a field. What am I, I don't understand this. What's going on? Where am I going? I mean, um, I, I wasn't in college. I had, had dropped out to, to move into this call. I felt like the Lord was moving me to, and that, that ended. And then I'm going, what, is, what am I doing with my life? And as I'm sitting there contemplating with, with it, uh, with the group of people that I'm with, we're sitting, we're praying, we're considering, a man walks onto the stage And he opens up with these words, and I've got these in my journal. I have the journal from that day when I was 22 years old of note-taking. And he opened up the, the message and he said, You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great. And be willing to live for them and die for them. People who make a difference in this world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. And I remember sitting there hearing those words and writing them down and scrambling as fast as I could to write all, as much of it down as I could. And I remember thinking through that, I, 22 years old, I think I, was, I had my mind made up, I was like, I, I want to make a difference somehow, I want my life to count, I want it to be for something, I just don't know what it is. I know, I know the Lord is good and there's this part of me that's wrestling with it and going yeah. But then he concluded that opening statement with this phrase, and this phrase shocked me. It rocked my world, if you will. He said, The very sad thing about today, here as we gather, there are many of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. And I can remember those words hitting me between the eyes, like he was talking to me in a field of 30,000 college age, wandering, questioning, struggling people. And that was the, the rock 'em, sock 'em, robot fight going on in my heart at that moment. The tension was whose applause will I live for? Will I live for the applause of man, or will I live for the applause of God? Is God worth it? Like those were thoughts that I wrestle with. My guess is there's many of you in this room who wrestle with the exact same thought of, "Is God worth it?" What will people say if I don't pursue the way the world says, "You've got to do these things, have this game plan put together, and you've got to go that direction, or you don't have a clue? Is life about being comfortable? Or could there be more? And I think the ultimate question would be, would it be my story and my kingdom, or would it be the story of another that I would tell with my life? And I told you, I did kind of have some kind of inkling that I wanted to make a difference, and I wanted to see the Lord use me in some possible way, but I had one very real question I was struggling with more than anything. And it was this. Is making an impact on the world about being a good Person and always saying the right thing and never doing the wrong thing and just being known as the good guy. Is that what it means to make a difference, is just to not screw up? Because as I began to weigh these things, I'm sitting there going, is is this something worth dying for? Like, is this... Worth me standing up and and helping a bunch of... I want to show you these statistics because it's not me. It's not me that thinks this. It's the most of the world thinks this. Barner released a survey. 37% of believing adults say that Christianity is about being good and not sinning. It's almost 40% of Christians in America believe this. 64% of teenagers. I've worked with teenagers for 15 years. 64% of teens believe Jesus tells bad people how to be good people. So my question to you that I still wrestle with is, is this, is this moral divinity something that we've created in our brain? Is this moral be good, behave, say the right thing, do the right thing at all times? Is it really worth dying for? And I think the greater question is very simple. Is it worth living for? Is, is, is throwing the Christian name across me and my face and the bumper stickers or whatever, the t-shirts, is it worth it if it's just about doing good and saying the right thing? Would I lay down my life to stand up here and tell a bunch of people how to do good things or be better people and not say the wrong thing? I have a hard enough time with that in my own life, so I don't feel like I could do that appropriately. See, I know for most of us, you know, and, and, and this is coming from living in, in teenage world and student ministry for so long, I got so sick of speakers thinking that this was a good question for teenagers. They would ask these, this question to teenagers at these big conferences that get really emotional and they would say, if somebody were to put a gun to your head, would you have the boldness to say yes to Jesus? Now, I don't know what direction we're going. I don't. I do not have any clue. I know I might say to you right now that I don't think I'll ever have a gun put to my head saying, would you deny Jesus to save your own life? A better question for teenagers is, you're probably going to wake up in the morning. Could you live for Jesus? Is he worth living for? Is he worth the normal for? Is he worth the life that you're going to walk in the school hallways or the, the, the sports teams or, or the, the, the drama department or the band department? Is he worth living for in those moments? Because chances are we're going to live normal lives. And the question becomes, is he worth living for? And I really do believe That Jesus is not just a hall monitor, but that he is more. And that the scripture declares that he is much more than a hall monitor. And God forbid that you see Jesus as a hall monitor and want to live your life for a hall monitor. I think this is a very real question a lot of you are wrestling with right now. Is Jesus really worth it? And I hope that this morning that Paul's words will we'll show you that, yes, he is, and he is much more than the hall monitor that you may see him as. You know, when I look at the book of Acts and I, and I consider the works, because I, I think I run into a lot of people who are like, I just want to go back to, to the Acts church. I just want to do what they did in Acts. I just want to love well, and I want to eat together. But see, here's the problem. You can't have the Acts church without the Acts view of Christ. You can't have a people so committed to sacrificial love without the understanding of what sacrificial love looks like in Christ. See, we want the Acts Church. We just don't want Jesus to be Lord. That's what we want. We, want to, we just want to do what feels good and be in community and use that buzzword and, and, and community it up. But without the Jesus who gave of himself freely, you will never have a people who knows how to give of themselves freely. And when I look at the Acts church, you know what I see them doing? Not standing on a street corner telling people to, to turn or burn or, you, you, you know, you're terrible people. What I see of people doing is loving so stinking well that it confuses people. You know what I see people doing in the book of Acts is being willing to go, I don't have anything, but because I see a need, I'm going to give the very little that I have. You know, if you read any early church history in the documents and letters that were written describing the church you will see people saying, I don't understand these Christians. You know, it's, it's said of them, as Rome burned, Christians didn't flee the city. They actually ran back into the city to rescue people. There were descriptions of Christians who, who they, were, they were hospitable to every single person that came their way. Stranger, enemy, foreigner, didn't matter. The phrase was that these, these Christians were, were open with their table, but they were closed with their beds. In a culture that celebrated multiple sexual partners in every certain certain way and kind, the Christians were closed to honoring the marriage bed. In a society that closed off the table but opened their bed, Christians opened the table and closed to their bed. See, Christ followers were marked by the things that they saw as valuable because they saw Jesus as most valuable. This is much more than a hall monitor that we have created him to be today. Paul goes into, right before Galatians 6.14, which is where we'll anchor today, he goes into these things that, that mark a people. We talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit and understanding that we walk and the fruit of the Spirit is developed. And Paul is saying, your works, you cannot save yourself. So quit Trying and rest in what Christ has done. And a result of that would be people paying attention to our brothers and sisters in the church who are being overcome by sin. Did you know that it is a quality of someone who understands what Christ has done would actually say to someone who's struggling with sin, hey, don't forget what Jesus has done. Not from an arrogant, I'm better than you, standing up above you, shame on you, look, but it's no, I'm capable of the very same sin, and I just want to warn you, I want to call you back humbly and gently to remember what Christ has done. This is a mark of the gospel. I think we're so consumed with, you know, I mean, every guy I've played basketball with, I swear they've had the tattoo of only God can judge me on their, on their arm. I don't understand Why? Because he will. That's what, I, that's what scares me the most, is that people are boasting that God will judge. And I'm like, yes, he will. Why are you so lackadaisical about that? And we think somehow that helping someone see their sin is, is judging, but it's, it's actually the opposite. It's loving. It's me saying, no, don't forget what Christ has done. It's, it's us saying that to each other. Don't look anywhere else. But for what Christ has done. See, we see Paul talking about sharing each other's burdens. What if we did that together? What if we saw somebody under a heavy load and we put our shoulder up on there, under there? And, so let me lift some of that for you. But oftentimes we don't see people carrying heavy burdens because we are so consumed with our own. Because we haven't seen Jesus as enough. We think we have to carry our own burdens when in fact Jesus said, Come to me all you who are weary and need rest. Bring me your burdens and I will be the one to carry them. Avoiding thinking we are too important to help someone in need. I love how Paul says, look, if you think you're too important to help someone in need, you're wrong. You're not that important. I love that. Because I think I'm important. You think you're important. We all think we're important. And Paul says, you're not that important. Don't forget that. Remember what Christ has done. Ultimately, we see Paul saying, whenever we have a chance to do good to others, we should take that chance. I love Paul's ability to risk everything for the kingdom because he has nothing to lose. What if we were a church free of the cares and the worries of losing things because we can't lose the most precious gift, and that is Christ? What if we were a church that risked because we knew we had nothing to lose? And then Paul takes the pen from his scribe. And in verse 11 of chapter 6, we see Paul say this. Notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. I love that Paul was strategic here. He'd been using a scribe to write down everything he had said up until this point. And this is a pay attention moment because Paul is grabbing the pen and in his own handwriting writing what's most important. And he goes into two ways to boast, two things to rejoice in. And the first, he says, is not what you want to do. In verses 12 and 13 of Galatians 6, he says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised, he's referring to all the false teachers that are coming into this church, who Paul planted and said, the gospel alone, faith in Christ alone saves nothing else. And these false teachers have come in after Paul leaves and begun to say another message that is no gospel at all. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised want to look good to others. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision, they don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. If you don't know what boasting is, I want to show you a, a, just a simple definition, I think, that will give us an idea. First of all, boasting is a verb. And in this text, it is a verb that continues to go on. So it means it doesn't stop. So this boasting that we do is not something that's momentary. It is ongoing. And so it says, "...to display or proclaim publicly a satisfied contentment with one's own or another's achievement." This is what it means to boast. I either boast in my achievement or I boast in the achievement of somebody else. And in the Bible, you see two types of boasting, appropriate boasting and inappropriate boasting. And the appropriate boasting is in the Lord and in the works of others. That's what we see in the scripture. We see people saying, man, it's so amazing what God is doing through you. The only inappropriate boasting you see in the scripture is when we boast in ourselves. There is appropriate boasting and there's inappropriate. And the gospel calls us to the appropriate of, I boast in what Christ has done. And we'll see that very clearly. But Paul does this very interesting thing in his letter to the Philippian church. Because he has this conversation all the time. We're talking about Galatians and how shocking the good news is. But Paul spends his whole life trying to explain how shocking the gospel is. And what Paul does in Galatians is he tries to help people see, hey, it's time to remove the checklists. You can't keep up the checklist game. It'll crush you. But even more than that, he points to the work of these false teachers and he says, these guys, they want you to be their checklist. Have you ever thought about that? Like these people were going to be the checklists for these false teachers. And Paul's saying they don't care about you. All they want to do is boast about their works and that you listen to them and that you got circumcised and that you're their disciples. That's all they want. But I came to you sharing the good news of what Christ has done alone. That freedom alone is found not in any work, but in the work of what Christ has done and so he goes, in, in, the, in, the, in his letter to the Philippians, he actually goes, okay, I'm going to entertain your idea of boasting in your own works. Because you want to play that game, I'll play that game with you. And in Philippians chapter 3, this is what he says, Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul's saying, look, if anybody's got any reason to think they're awesome, I have plenty of reasons. And then he goes into this list. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as far as righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. See, this this is the interesting definition of a person, and I think maybe some of you have said that. That if you were to look at Paul on the outside, maybe you would be someone who said, Jesus died for everyone but that guy. That guy didn't need Jesus to get in. He's so good, God's going to let him in on his own. There may be some people that you walk with that you might think that thought, and Paul shatters that thought. See, the church has been really, really good at telling people they can't be bad enough for the gospel. We have. We've said, look, it doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've seen, doesn't matter what you've said or done come to Jesus. The church has done a terrible job, a terrible job of proclaiming that you can't be too good for the gospel. There are people in America who believe they're good enough without the gospel in the church. I'm good, man. I I go to church on Sunday. I give, I sing, um, I I work at a homeless shelter on a Saturday morning. I, I do all of these things. And we know that Paul's not bragging because of what he says in the same breath in verse 7 and 8, Philippians. Listen to what he says after giving this list of things he could have boasted in. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. See, typically when we're in the church, and the church has done a very good job of, of, of magnifying these stories, we hear, well, I was living it up. I was partying, drinking, sleeping around, making tons of money. But then one night the party got so wild, I ended up strung out and naked in the trunk of a Cadillac. Now, if that's your story and you're here, then I need to talk to you afterwards because Jesus is being really specific with hunting you right now, okay? <laughs> All right? If that's your story, we'll talk afterwards. But see, the church has been so good at saying you can't be bad enough. And that, you know, when you wake up, you know, strung out naked in the trunk of a Cadillac, you wake up and you go, wow, where am I headed? You can totally see, hey, there's a need for something to change. But see, what Paul is saying, in effect, is he's saying, I have behaved. I have dug my wells in Africa. I have kneeled down and posted Twitter pictures of me holding orphans. I have three kids that I've paid for to go to school through Compassion International. I, I went to the Christian school, and I am a nice person. And after all Paul says, he says, I see that all is worthless so that I could have Christ. And you know why he says they're worthless? Not because the works themselves are worthless. Look, if you're somebody in here who said I've I've gone and dug wells and I've, I've 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 sponsored compassion kids, the work is not worthless. People have benefited and seen life because of those things. But you know what he is calling worthless? Putting his trust in those things to save him. Paul is saying that all of the things that I did, thinking I was good enough or moral enough or upright enough, I have thrown them to the side and said, because of what Christ has done, and now that I know Christ, nothing compares. Which brings us to Galatians 6.14, the verse that I believe has marked me. At 22 years old, I'm still finding fresh Insight And and, and the Lord just going, this is where we have to stay. And in Galatians 6.14, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. You know, I think Paul's words are strategic here. Because Paul doesn't just say, may I boast about Jesus? He doesn't just say, hey, I'm just going to talk really good about Jesus. I'm going to talk a lot about Jesus. Because I, I can tell you that he uses the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, very strategically. Because in the same breath, just before this, he mentions that the, the, the law teachers, the false teachers, they don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone saves And so Paul amazingly and brilliantly combats their idea with the difference maker in what Jesus has done. See, people like to talk about Jesus. He's got good sayings. He's a good role model. But when you bring up the cross, tensions rise. If Jesus came to be just a good teacher, then why the cross? If Jesus only intended us to put into practice his teaching, then why the cross? If Jesus only wanted us to behave and do good works, then why the cross? These are very real questions you and I have to wrestle with if we are going to live for and die for this thing as the main thing. Paul is not boasting in a piece of wood. Paul's not boasting in taking up his own cross. What he is boasting in is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, this is our boast. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. The reason Paul boasted was because he knew it was plan A. It was God's plan to rescue us through what Christ did, and there was no amount of work he could do or no amount of sin he could run after that was going to change God's plan. You know, just to, to remind us, to display or proclaim publicly a satisfied contentment. Where are you boasting? Are you boasting in what you're, a, you're able to do? Or are we boasting in the finished work of Christ? And I'm not just saying boasting about Jesus. I'm boasting about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are specific words for a specific reason to mark a specific people. That is us. Now, there are two, two results because of that cross, and I don't necessarily know if we like those results. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't care about the people on the earth. That's not what it says. When the Bible uses the word world, oftentimes what it means is the philosophies, the teachings, and the ideas that the world promotes for success and what it means to have life and all these different things. Power, pleasure, fortune, fame, control. I mean, you can look at all these things that the world says, you got to have this to make any sense of life. And Paul's saying, actually... No, when your eyes are open to the need that Jesus meets, and that is the greatest heart longing of every single human being, is that salvation, that being made right with God through Christ, something happens. Eyes are opened and lives are transformed. Um, Robert Murray uh, McShane, an old school preacher, said it this way, and when when it comes to confessing Christ, he said this, It is like the best wine that goeth down sweetly, causing lips to speak. Now, I know none of you in here would admit it, but if you've been in Asheville long enough, Trader Joe's has something called three-buck Chuck, red and white table wine. If you've got no money, $2.99 to entertain guests with. You can throw it on your table, look fancy, okay? That's what you can do with three-buck Chuck. But well, what he's saying here is the difference between three-buck Chuck and this expensive, aged red or white wine that you've tasted, it really does make you go, Oh, good Lord, that is delicious. There is a very real difference between the things of this world and when a heart has been, it's had its eyes opened to how big Jesus really is and what he's accomplished on our behalf, that causes us to go, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Dustin Kentrew, lead singer of Thrice, he, he has a solo album. And in one of the songs, he uses this phrase. It says, now that I've tasted blood, this wine seems too thin. And he's going through the progression of an addict. And they move from one thing to the next. And how one addiction is this much, but then there's a new addiction that gets entered in. And it cancels out that other addiction. And he doesn't directly say anything about Jesus. But the understanding for me and my takeaway of this song was, now that I've tasted blood, not professing cannibalism. But in the the Lord's Supper, when we sit around and we taste the, the juice and the bread, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. Everything else seems to fail and to pale in comparison to what Christ has done. That's what Paul is saying here that nothing in this world, although we fail and we are tempted by, can replace what Jesus has done. But then there's another phrase that he uses, and I think this is the one we struggle with the most. I think we understand that the things of the world are starting to fade away, but here's the other one. Because of that cross, the world's interest in me has also died. And that means exactly what you think it means. See, Paul was in a place of prestige and power and looked up at and seen as awesome and incredible and amazing, and he had all these skills and all this stuff, but the minute he begins to declare Christ as enough, the finished work of Christ on the cross, he's mocked. He's beaten. He's laughed at. He's made fun of. He lives his life on the run, having to be lowered out of windows in a basket to escape for his very life simply because he proclaimed the finished work of Christ on the cross. Many of us, we may be refusing the cross because we love our our reputation as the likable person we love that people see us and think highly of our niceness, don't we? I just don't want somebody to think I'm not okay with anything and that I'm all right and then that we're all good, everything's good. But see, as a people pleaser, that's me. This has, and I, I believe, will always be the most difficult aspect of the, Christ of, cross, of the cross of Christ in my own life. The cross does not remove my desire to be kind, by, but by its very nature, the cross repels those who hate the idea that it carries with it. I might have have given as kind and a grace-saturated presentation of the love of Christ on the cross, and I still might be hated. And it's not because of me, but it's because of Christ. You know, for me, I have to struggle with the understanding and the idea that I might choose the path of being liked over boasting in the cross of Christ. And it's not going to lead me to the life I hope for it. Much more than that, it will not point others to their deepest need in a Savior, in Christ. There's a very real cost you and I must consider. And I hope every single one of you will wrestle with the question, is he worth it? Because you cannot stand in both places. Your life, you, will be miserable There comes a point where we have to say yes, no. We can't live in between because we'll be miserable people and we will paint a very awkward picture of what it means to be the body of Christ. Paul is not saying that he's boasting in his, even in his boast, that does not save him. Romans chapter 3 verse 27, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. See, for the believer, I'm not being forced to boast about anything. I'm not being forced to boast about God as if, if I don't boast, He's not going to save me. I've got to boast so that He'll save me. I've got to say these things about Jesus, I've got to proclaim Jesus, I've got to do all these things so that He'll save me. No, I boast because He has rescued you know, your iPhone, your iPad, it didn't come with directions on how to tell people about the iPhone or the iPad. You just do it because you boast in something you think is awesome. And for the Christ follower, that's, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. I have seen the folly of my sin. I have seen how messed up I am, but I have seen the grace of God, and it is so attractive. I can't go anyplace else. And so as we close this morning in worship, I want to share with you just briefly about a man named... George Whitfield, he's a, a preacher from the 1700s, but he started much like most of us. Well, probably not, because I don't know how many of your parents owned a motel, but his parents owned a motel. And at two years old, his, his dad passed, and so his mom just raised him in this motel. He, he followed the life of cursing, fighting, drinking, all that different stuff, and he loved the stage, was an actor, would, would do stage plays in the motel for his mom's business, And as he turned 17 or 18, he went away to to Pembroke at Oxford, and he was carrying the weight of his sin, the guilt of his sin. He had no clue what to do with. He had no idea of how to to release this this weight, this pressure that was on him that he just felt condemned by. And so he meets Charles and John Wesley, names that you may or may not know, it doesn't matter. But at Oxford, they had started what was called the Oxford Holy Club. (laughs) Imagine that club being on your school campus. But it was a club committed to moral uprightness. And Charl and, 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 and George Whitfield was unable to find the rescue he was looking for through this moral thing. And, and, and it wasn't until a reading that he read that the secret to the life of a Christ follower is understanding Christ in me, covering me. And it was in that moment his eyes were open, and sin, the sin that he thought was so big and crushing became light. And he saw it gone because of Christ's finished work. Now, George Whitfield, if you know anything about him, was, was one of the instigators for this idea of a great awakening, not just in Europe, but also in the United States. George Whitfield knew people like Ben Franklin, Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he knew all of these people, and he, he was requested to speak all over the place because his idea of what Christ had done had overtaken him. Charles, George Whitfield was a man who was extremely popular among the people to start with. They wanted to hear him speak because he was so good at it and he was so wonderful at it. And he could have gotten a huge head about it, but he, because of what Christ had done, he understood his position and like, I'm nothing. But Christ is everything. And as I was reading about him this week, there was a man named J.C. Ryle who said of George Whitfield, he said he was a man of remarkable disinteredness, dis, dis, Disinterestedness. start saying that. A man of remarkable disinterestedness and a singleness of eye. See, there's this understanding among Christians that people like to assume about Christians that they are closed minded And there are many that I believe are because they don't necessarily know who Jesus is. But there is something that we are marked by and it's single-mindedness. And there's a very real difference between single-mindedness and close-mindedness. Single-mindedness was the life Jesus lived. It was to the glory of the Father. That is where I will live, and that is where I will go, and that is what I will do. And it caused him to live a life that would mean his death so that you and I could live. You know, George Whitfield did not live a very popular life all of his life. There were people that just hated the message of the cross. The state-run church hated the message of the cross. It was a season of coldness and legalism and law in the church's life. And George Whitfield was bringing life because he was proclaiming salvation was by through faith, by grace, through faith alone." And he faced opposition. In one of his journals, he wrote this. He says, "I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs and pieces of dead cat thrown at me." George Whitfield was stabbed. People would hire trumpeters and drummers to drown out his preaching. He was physically assaulted and beaten. There was an assassination attempt on his life one night, which led him to pen the phrase, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. He would often pray at night, God, please give me a well-guided zeal for the one thing that matters most, and that is the cross of Christ. And there are many who believe that this was how he was so effective at seeing people and transformation happening and the, the great awakening that we know in American history. Why do I say boast only in the cross? Because I believe it's the only way the mission of the church will advance. I do not think Highland will be effective if we choose to say, do more, try harder. Because that's what the world says. And the message of the gospel is so other that it's shocking, which is why we have been in Galatians The message and the boast of the church is in the cross of Christ. It's the story of another that we will live to tell. And it is why I believe we will move forward in this city. Because it's the only story that wakens hearts. It's the only story that truly brings us to life. It's the only story that will cause the transformation that we long to see. And So this morning, as you consider where your boast is, church... We can't be half in on boasting about ourselves and half in boasting about the cross of Christ. You will live a miserable life if that's where you choose to live. I'm telling you. Many of you can testify to that. I can testify to that. Do I get it right all the time? Absolutely not, but that's why I know Jesus got it right. That's where my trust lies, in what he accomplished. And that's why I'll boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I hope we will boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning as we we finish up, there's going to be some folks over here that would love to pray with you. Uh, If you're at a place where you're like, I just don't, I I get it. I don't know what to do next. I'm at a place, I'm at a crossroad and I don't know what to do next. Love to pray with you, encourage you. And if you're a person who said, I have been boasting my whole life in my own and I don't know what it means to boast in the cross, I would love to talk with you over here. But I would ask, I would beg I would plead with you not to tarry, not to let it deal with itself later, but to say today is the day of salvation. It's the day that I can put my fork down and say, yeah, I see you and and I get it. And I don't know what that means for the rest of my life, but I know at this moment I need to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for loving us, and I pray that in this time you'd be honored. And that our boast, our rejoicing, our declaration would be in the finished work of Christ. Somehow, by your Holy Spirit, you would help us understand what that means. In Jesus' name.